that time again. You know what time. Time to save the date. We are fast approaching the Narrow Century family reunion, and hasn't the time flown? It's been an eventful couple of years for all of us. I know Maggie's been having some great success with her practice. Chad, also, so glad to be welcoming his lovely new dog to the fold. But of course, I shouldn't spoil everything. We'll leave all the bits and pieces for the event itself. Sadly, it's to be expected that we'd suffer some losses, with the events of last year especially, and it being the 11th reunion... Wow. Uh... 11. Doesn't feel like quite that many. Um, anyway, RSVP in the usual way, and remember to bring your swimsuits. I'll see you real soon. My family has a history with crows. In Portland, where I was raised, there are always crows flapping around, up on telephone wires, picking at parking strips and medians in the road, clustered in great flocks, murders, I should say, in the canopy of trees around my neighborhood. And for as long as I can remember, my family has had a special relationship with them. See, in the springtime, the new baby crows fall out of their nests, or maybe their parents drop them out, I've never been entirely clear on how it works, and they're left to fend for themselves until they manage to climb their way back up. These crows are called groundlings. The thing is, sometimes the groundlings can't climb back up. They broke a wing or a foot or get forced away from the nest and can't find their way back. Normally, this basically means the end for the crow in question. As it happens, though, my family has a history with crows, and when people find groundlings, they know to call my mom. Even though we've had crows in the house for comparatively short periods, the sound of squawking, chattering, complaining crow cries is as engraved in my memories as snow at Christmas time. We'd take turns looking after them, feeding them cat food, frozen peas, deli meats, apple slices, and cleaning up the mountains of crap that they produced. There were five of them that I remember specifically. Siegfried, the wounded fighter, Hod, the blind man, the twins, Irk and Vex, and, of course, Raucus, the one with all the opinions. Crows are among the smartest creatures on Earth. Behavioral scientists are ranking them alongside high-level primates, above dolphins. Crows can use tools, solve multi-step problems, they can use trickery and deceit to keep their food safe from competition. Some crows can watch a person put something, a shiny trinket or a scrap of food, into a safe, then hop over and open the safe back up again. You may have heard how some crows are opening walnuts. They've taken to dropping them on streets, so that when cars run over them, they shatter the shell and leave the meat easy pickings for the crow. The problem, of course, is that it's hard to snatch nuts out of the center of a busy street. So what do the crows do? They start dropping them on crosswalks, so that when the lights change, they can swoop down and retrieve their prize. <sighs> I could talk for hours about crows. I haven't even really studied them, just picked up stories and anecdotes here and there. But, of course, that doesn't just come from me. That comes from my mom. Mary McLaughlin was born and raised in Portland before moving out east in college. She lived up in the West Hills, over on Thurman Street, and when she was young, some neighbors moved away and they left behind their pet crow. 
Like my family does now, they had saved him as a groundling, and his name, of course, was Poe. These neighbors had, I guess, raised Poe up in much the same way that we do now. He had a cage that they passed on to my uncle, Rabbit, but it was more of a house for the night than an actual cage. They never bothered to close the door, and he'd come breezing in and out at all hours, bopping around the neighborhood and raising hell. He'd make a habit of abusing the local cats, squawking and shouting at them from just out of reach, then dancing off if they ever got too close. They rarely did, though, and more often than not, the cats would stalk away with their heads low, cowed by the barrage of insults that, I imagine, Poe was hurling their way in his strange, rasping language. Then he'd sit back on his tree branch and croak victory into the still summer air. The new neighbors, who'd replaced his old family, didn't particularly care for him either. I remember my mom told me about how they spent a fair chunk of change on replacing the tiles on their roof, but Poe had other ideas about what the house needed. In the summertime, he'd creep across the kitchen counter in my mom's old house and steal off with some slices of deli meat. Then, after eating his fill, he'd flap over to the neighbor's roof where he'd carefully peeled up a patch of grand new tiling to make a hidey hole in the eaves underneath. And there, Poe would store his ill-gotten gains. Of course, this being summer, a pile of meat under a black asphalt roof did not make for an appetizing smell, and before too long, the neighbors began to wonder why their living rooms stank of rancid turkey. They weren't really Poe's biggest fans. Around dinner time, or really, whenever Poe imagined it was time to eat, he'd storm the kitchen and flap right alongside the line of pots and pans hung up above the window, and it would raise a great clanging clamor that roused the neighborhood for blocks. But, in the family, Poe was everyone's favorite bird. The two cats, Fat and the real Meow, didn't bother him at all. My grandfather, Dennis, loved Poe dearly, and in the evenings... Dennis would often sit and read while he absently fed the crow, and Poe would sit on the arm of the chair and gently rub his black beak up against my grandfather's fingertips. That was their little gesture. This is all second-hand, of course, back when my mom was in middle school and high school, when Thurman Street and the West Hills were run-down and low-rent. The area was on such a steep incline, built up the side of the valley, that it didn't seem unlikely for the spring and winter rains to wash whole houses down the slopes and into the Willamette. I was raised on stories my mom and uncle had to tell about the house on Thurman Street, so now I have vivid memories of my own about how these things happened. All of this about Poe is like that, but it's not exactly what I mean when I say that my family has a history with crows. That comes down to a very particular story. Immediately to the west of Portland is Forest Park, uh, the biggest urban park in the country. As the name suggests, it's a patch of forest, climbing up and down gullies and across ridges scoring the west hills, wound through with trails and footpaths stretching eight miles from north to south along the Tualatin Mountains. So this park opened up right off my mom's old backyard, so she and her brothers would spend hours and hours up there, all year round. And one day, when Mara was maybe 13, 14 years old, she was up walking the trails. Being the age she was, she was up brooding about the unfairness of early teenage life, the unfairness of the world, how nobody understood her, etc., etc., when she realized this guy was following her. Weird, 
weird guy walking maybe 50 feet behind her, and she'd only barely noticed him. She wasn't given to paranoia, but she just got a bad vibe off of him. So she sped up her stride a bit. And so did he. She walked faster still, and he kept pace, staying about 50 feet behind. Mara's heart was starting to pound, and she realized that she had been so lost in her head that she'd walked way, way up into the park. If she were to scream, nobody would hear her. And the guy behind her starts closing the distance. Forty feet. Thirty feet. Twenty. And Mara stops, and she does the only thing she can think to. She throws back her head and shouts as loud as she can, Po! Po! And the guy just keeps coming forward. And then, from above them, there comes a squawk, a cry, a croak that sounds angry. And who should come flying down out of the trees but Poe? He came sweeping down to the path in a flare of black feathers, and he lands on Mara's shoulder, turns towards the guy, and goes, Aah! And the guy turns and runs. So, that's the story of how a crow saved my mom. Since then, she's done her best to repay the species, and she's passed on her love of and gratitude towards crows to me and the rest of my family. Call it strange or weird or creepy, but there's something captivating about them. In fiction, they don't usually mean well. They usually get associated with the likes of vultures, carrion birds who opportunistically prey on death and misfortune. Groups of them are called murders— they're so ubiquitous that nobody even thinks about it when they see a crow or hear them cawing on a bleak winter day. But, to the ancient Greeks, the crow was associated with Apollo, a symbol of augury, foresight, and wisdom. In Norse mythology, Odin is accompanied by his twin crows Munin and Hugin, memory and thought, who whisper all the secrets of the world in his ears. The Celtic warrior goddess Morrigan often took the form of a crow, acting as a harbinger of battle, with the future reflected in those bright, beady eyes. In many Native American myths, the crow is a cunning and clever trickster, a schemer, using his wits where strength and speed fail. Even in Abrahamic myth, when Noah's Ark was adrift for days, it was a crow that first found land, and when Cain slew Abel, it was a crow that taught Adam and Eve how to deal with the grim realities of death. Crows know and remember human faces. They hold grudges, but maybe more importantly, they remember when someone is a friend to their flock. As much as I love crows, I still don't think I could easily tell them apart. Even specialists who've studied them for years have trouble with that. One last story about crows for you guys. Poe again. One night, after they had moved Poe's cage into the living room, a more central location for him to come back to, he was sleeping on his roost. Raccoons came creeping in through the cat door, and they saw the crow all alone in the middle of the room. Before Poe even realized what was happening, one of the raccoons shot a hand out between the bars and seized him, trying to pull Poe through the narrow slats. 
The strangled Kong and the clatter that the raccoons made brought Mara and her family running, and the lights flicked on, and the raccoons went running back into the night. It was clear at a glance what was happening. Poe was dying. Dennis, my grandfather, got a weapon and cradled the bird in his hands while the family cried. He told them what they already knew, that Poe was suffering and there was nothing they could do, and it was a matter of minutes anyway. But he was brought up short by Poe, croaking weakly and raising up his mangled head to brush his beak along Dennis's fingertips. That all took a while to tell. Thanks for taking the time to listen to me ramble about this. These days in Portland, I've heard that the crows are congregating around downtown. Great sheets of black birds go gliding over Pioneer Square, and between the buildings come twilight, and at night they cluster in trees to turn the foliage dark. Some people are concerned that they could be a problem. I hear the city is hiring falconers to scare them off. Me... I just keep thinking I ought to cross the river and visit them more often. I still have a debt to repay, after all. And my family has a history with crows that I have to honor. Century, Episode 11, Corviday, was written and performed by Gordon Graham. Music was provided, with permission, by Petunia and the Vipers and Ashley Blinko. For written material and further episodes, visit narrowcentury.com. But he'll find this girl is different. Her voice will better back away. And if far from her, he won't stay.